This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham joined me to talk about the federal election results as well as the latest in federal politics. Then, Dr Georgia Garrard, a research fellow at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT, as well as Professor Brendan Wintle, a professor in conservation ecology at Melbourne University and director of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub, both joined me in the studio to talk about the status of the Western Grassland Reserve in Melbourne's outer suburbs. We also discussed federal and state environment laws and what needs to change in order to stop extinction and save our flora and fauna. Then, finally, Malcolm Farnsworth, political writer and publisher of AustralianPolitics.com, joined me in the studio for an in-depth analysis of the federal election trends, results, the history of Australian federal elections, and remembering former Prime Minister Bob Hawke. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM. I'm Amy Mullins and I have with me in the studio Mr Ben Altham and he is here to discuss some pretty big, big news from the weekend which I doubt you will have been able to avoid given that we were participating in democracy. So we are talking about the federal election. We're also talking about what has happened since the election and election night Hi there, Ben. Good morning, Amy. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm good, actually. That's good. Yeah. Things are um, quite in turmoil in the Labor Party, given that all the news polls were saying that Labor was ahead for weeks, if not years. And uh, although it was close in the news poll at the end, there were some very different results on election night. Well, yeah, I, I think... Yeah, if you want to go to the polls first, let's discuss it. So the polls comprehensively failed. All the polls got it wrong. All of them, not just News Poll, Ipsos, mm-hmm. Roy Morgan. Uh, As did the betting markets. Yep, absolutely. A number of my mates made quite a bit of money betting on the coalition to win, actually. <laughs> um, so well done to them. Um, it's a bit Gamble of a, responsibly. A financial upside to uh, Saturday night for those guys. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, uh, and you know... It, There'll be a lot of raking over the coals of exactly what happened with the opinion polls, why they got it so wrong. But I think it's fair to say that it blindsided everybody. Both the Coalition and Labor thought that Labor was going to win. And uh, so uh, there was just as much surprise in the Liberal ranks as there was in the Labor ranks, actually, on Saturday night when the results from Queensland started rolling in. And it really is a result... Uh, that happened largely in Queensland as well as in the outer suburbs in the regions of Australia. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why there's going to be so much soul-searching for the Labor Party because uh, they went backwards uh, amongst their base, really, um, mm. and particularly in middle Australia, working families, the very people that were supposed to propel Bill Shorten into the Prime Ministership were the ones that turned against Labor. Yeah, it's pretty surprising um, given that... it. it the polling had set a lot of expectations, as you said, not only in the parties but in the electorate. People thought they'd sit down and see a Labor win. They just didn't know to what degree. And now we've seen most likely a coalition majority government by one or two seats. Of course, counting is still happening in three kind of key seats that aren't quite um, settled and there's, you know, a 100 or so votes between people, candidates in those, such as, for example... Victoria's seat of Chisholm. 
Yeah, a few seats still to be decided. Chisholm and Victoria. Um, I Bass. think Bass. Uh, I believe um, Anne Ali's seat over in Western Australia is still Cowan. very close in Cowan. Yes, uh, but yeah, look. Bottom line, Scott Morrison has won. The coalition will have a majority. They'll be able to govern comfortably for the next three years. This is a, a, a win, a, a miracle, as, as Morrison called it, for the Liberal Party, and it's a crushing defeat for the Labor Party, of course, ending Bill Shorten's political career. Yes, and a lot of people thought that Clive Palmer, when he was buying out 60 to $70 million worth of ads online, broadcast and print and etc etc they everyone thought clive palmer he's got his own party uap he wants to get a seat in parliament he wants you know as many people as he could possibly get elected but really the effect has been different particularly in queensland voters who voted for one nation and uap have essentially given some of their momentum and votes over to the liberal party which is why the liberals have done even more be- more well in queensland than they may have already been doing look there was a swing against labor in queensland in particular and the minor parties picked up a lot of that swing but the lnp also picked up some yes. of that swing so it's not just a minor party effect mm. um, but most of the preferences from the minor parties did go to the coalition in queensland mm-hmm. um, and that explains uh why the results were so bad up there but but the ALP polled 27% in primary vote terms yeah. in Queensland. That's a it's devastating failure. And, in fact, nation, nationwide, the Labor Party polled 34% on primary votes. That's just one-third of voters. That's not a winning primary vote in any election ever. So the ALP does have a lot of questions to ask itself what went wrong. Uh, I think we can, we can agree that a couple of their policies were disastrous. The franking credits rebate in particular has been... Uh, it's been fingered by a number of people as really uh, a devastating policy. Um, you know, even just anecdotally, right, I was talking to my parents who are retirees in suburban Brisbane and they said that all any of their friends were talking about were the franking credits, right? So it was a massive issue amongst over-65s and we saw that from the huge swings away from the Labor Party. Now... Uh, why that was, I think there'll be a lot of analysis go into exactly why that policy was so disastrous for the Labor Party. It only affected a very small number of people, but it clearly convinced a lot of pensioners, a lot of retirees, that Labor was coming for their retirement, as Scott Morrison said. You know, so there was so it's definitely the optics of that policy that seemed to be taking money away from older Australians, from retirees, was terrible for the ALP. Um, and then we ne- we also obviously need to talk about Bill Shorten's leadership. So whatever you think about Bill Shorten, the person, I mean, I've met him a number of times. I actually think he's quite a likeable person when you meet him in person. Um, But he was a profoundly unpopular leader and that was shown on Saturday night, I think, particularly outside Victoria. Yes, well, I think really that the coalition tapped into a lot of the emotion and the issues of negative gearing and retirees and pensioners and, you know, the security in the final years of life, financial security, was really something that gripped people. It is something that a lot of people are quite anxious about, whether they are going to be retiring and when, because a lot of people need to work a lot longer than expected. But then also those who are in retirement who don't have the, the option 
open to them really to work full time again. They've made plans, as they said, we've seen it said many times. I made plans based on XYZ, which was the tax situation. Why haven't you grandfathered this uh, this particular policy? A lot of people have said um, they did grandfather the negative gearing policy. Um, the franking credits, as we've said many, many times, it wasn't getting rid of franking credits. It was actually just you can still, um, you know, reduce your taxable income to zero using franking credits. You just wouldn't get the difference that would have been given to you in a cheque in the mail if you did have a further, you know, contribution. Well, yeah, as we've talked about on the show, Amy, I mean, I actually support the policy. I thought it was a sensible reform. Uh, it was a vastly inequitable policy that mainly gave money to rich retirees. Uh, it gave taxpayers money to people who don't pay tax. Uh, but Labor was fundamentally unable to explain it and the coalition just made merry with it, you know. And and those devastating TV ads that they run, you know, Labor can't be trusted with your money where they're smashing the piggy bank and stealing people's money, I think they were very effective. And, and so Labor failed not just in terms of the policies but also in messaging and in its campaigning. And I think a lot of questions are being asked about Labor's campaign strategy and tactics, how it was run, what happened there with Noah Carroll, the ALP campaign director, um, why was Shorten... I mean, we know why Shorten was confident. It was because their polls internally were telling them they were going to mm. win. Um, but why didn't they pick up this swing, you know? And I think that is really interesting. Were they just not talking to enough voters? Were they not talking to the right voters? Um, Who was opting in to uh, polling? Absolutely. So my Queensland ALP sources were very, very pessimistic um, a couple of weeks out from the campaign. You know, they didn't believe the national polls. Mm. They thought the ALP was in trouble in Queensland and that's what turned out to happen. Um, but it wasn't just Queensland. We should point that out. It was out of suburbs nationally. Mm-hmm. It was the regions. Um, it Tasmania. Was a- Tasmania. It was anywhere with a, a mining industry or anywhere associated with coal um, swung hard against Labor. Massive swing against Joel Fitzgibbon in the Hunter Valley. Uh, so climate change clearly was an issue, but ironically, climate change seemed to play out in a negative for Labor um, and in favour of the LNP. Yes, and there has been discussion when we're talking about the issue of the Adani mine. Um, it was obviously campaigned a lot in uh, Queensland and there was a lot of um, different protesters and environmentalists coming to Queensland because Adani is a big issue for them. And uh, a lot of people in the outer areas of Queensland, the, the regions, were looking at you know what the protesters were saying and kind of some of them saying they felt like it was quite condescending because the way that they associate Adani it is with jobs particularly in areas where there is high levels of unemployment up to 35 percent in some areas so I mean you can see how there's a bit of a disconnect between some people who might live in the cities and climate change is their number one issue um, versus some people who are living in the regions. And although they do care about climate change, I don't think there would be any doubt about that. A lot of people do. That the Adani issue became more about mining and jobs and financial security and survival rather than, you know, the big picture issue of what Adani represents, which is global warming and, you know, the end of coal and the things that we've been discussing as inner city people. Yes, I think, in a word, yes. Um, Whenever climate change policy is framed in terms of economic security, the Conservatives win. Mm. And the Conservatives were able to frame it 
in those terms again in this election campaign, and yet again they won. Uh, so uh, there's there's something there, I think, for environmental campaigners and the left to think about very carefully. Uh, you know, a lot of the campaign resources that get up devoted to campaigning try and unseat safe liberals in safe liberal seats. They failed. You know, I yeah. think the environment movement in general needs to have a look at itself and its campaign tactics and what it's trying to achieve. And I think it needs to think very carefully about how to move forward in terms of capturing more public support for the policies that it advocates for. But even moving aside from the tactics, you know, there's no doubt that there's there's big problems in Queensland, OK? The drought and then followed by the devastating Massive floods, floods mm. um, have been really bad up there. And I don't think uh, Southerners realise uh, a lot of the Queensland cattle industry has been literally wiped out. Millions of cattle have been killed in that flood and farmers are on, are in desperate straits, really. Um, unemployment is way higher than in the cities. And so a bunch of Southerners touring through in a caravan telling them to shut down a, a potential mine that, that might bring economic benefit to the region, that was deeply unpopular deeply unpopular indeed yep. and I, and I, you have seen actually some of the environment groups acknowledge that that, that failed yeah, and obviously Queensland is one of the major states in terms of being, you know, fruit growers, vegetable growers. They are really part of where we get our food. Obviously, all parts of Australia contribute, but Queensland does contribute quite a significant amount given the unique temperate uh area that they do have which is conducive to growing types of things like strawberries and bananas and avocados oh subtropical in fact yeah yeah i mean so there's that that issue um look there's a there's a bunch of stuff i mean you know a lot of the suburban brisbane seats it wasn't really about climate change it was clearly about the franking credits uh susan lamb mm. lost in longman for example it's got a, a big retiree population on bribe island and along the coast they those booths swung very hard for the coalition um you know and I think more broadly, uh, I think Scott Morrison was able to project an image that resonated with middle Australia, whether you like it or not. Uh, the daggy dad stereotype, the baseball caps, the media japes, you know, that, that kind of suburban small businessman persona, that resonated for a lot mm. of voters, whether you agree with that or not. And Bill Shorten clearly didn't. So big leadership issues um, and big questions about the future of the Labor Party. I mean, this was a mildly social democratic redistribution, redistributive platform from Labor. They did want to take money off the rich and they did want to put it into health and education and the, the social safety net. Um, so, you know, have have Australians rejected that policy platform? Yes, they have. So I think Labor needs to think carefully about where it's going next. Well, it's it wasn't really... If we're talking about language and leadership and even body language and facial expressions, Bill Shorten was running on a positive platform he was trying to say we're not raising taxes we're just taking away unaffordable subsidies and loopholes he said in order to do that like we are doing that in order to give you here's all the different suite of policies that we've got here's the spending it's a trade-off we're making choices he used the word choice a lot but whenever you looked at him on the television explaining these policies he had a frown he was kind of scowling half the time he he had a very positive agenda but he wasn't projecting positivity whereas Scott Morrison had a very negative agenda which was don't vote for them they're dangerous they're going to tax you we're going to put the economy into all 
types of trouble, Labor's going to spend too much, blah, 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 doom and gloom. But he was always happy, looking happy and positive and smiling and, you know, as you said, the daggy dad, the knockabout bloke. So it was quite a contradiction in terms and, and also just the way that the leaders presented themselves. Yep, absolutely. I think uh, Morrison comprehensively out campaigned Shorten really from beginning to end. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and Morrison's decision to go very narrow and very targeted with his messaging worked. I mean, we also have to be careful. I mean, there's a lot of kind of, you know, Monday morning armchair general kind of stuff here. I mean, in the last week of the campaign, I was saying things like the coalition has a very narrow and negative campaign and that's why it's not working because that's what we thought. It wasn't working, right? We thought the polls were right. Now the coalition has won we're saying oh the the negative campaign it worked it was a genius you know so you know these 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 narratives are shaped by the perceptions and by you know the fact that the the victors get to write history uh you know if if morrison had lost and if shorten had won we'd be sitting here talking about the future of the liberal party the decomposition of the australian conservative project you know the future social democratic future of australia um you know, so I mean, this is why elections are important, aren't they? They are, and one of the main issues people have been discussing is the economy because the economy is slowing down, and we are having uh, an issue. We need to diversify in terms of sectors and growth areas, and the economy is not doing that. We need a far more proactive approach to that. But the coalition, because they've had such a small target approach and are the safe pair of hands, quote-unquote, they've been able to capture the anxiety and the low confidence that has existed in the economy, that, you know, slow, low consumer sentiment. Yeah, yeah I think that's right, Amy. I think that the very fact that the economy has been slowing down in the lead-up to the election paradoxically actually helped the coalition because the anxiety that a lot of people feel about the, the economic future. There are storm clouds on the horizon. You can see that with growth very low, unemployment rising, inflation at rock bottom, wages at rock bottom. Uh, this is a low-growth, low-wage economy now, and, and so that's why people are feeling anxious, I think, and insecure. And Labor was fundamentally unable to play into that sentiment, whereas the coalition was. Mm. You know, I... I think if Labor had framed their campaign around wages and about giving ordinary workers a pay rise, I think they would have romped in. But, um, you know, maybe... I mean, who knows? I mean, They I'll, tried. They tried, but they... They did try. They didn't persist. You know, they, they began the campaign with some of those messages and then they pivoted to other issues, um, you know, the cancer, the healthcare, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there were a lot of confused messages in Labor's campaign. If you went to Labor's website, there was a hundred different policies. You know, it was very hard to work out, um, you know, what the big picture message was beyond a sort of... Um, uh, you know, abstract idea of fairness, uh, whereas Coalition was razor-sharp, laser-focused, completely targeted, negative, um, often dishonest, but hugely effective. Yeah, and let's talk about uh, the role of the media in this to reflect back some of the things that happened in the campaign. Um, we saw a lot of journalists, you know, trying to get to the bottom of some of the labour policies and one of the sticking points was what is the cost of climate action? And then Bill Shorten's response was what is the cost of inaction in a very broad way? One of the suggestions in recent times has been, and I had thought this throughout the campaign, is that there is a great 
economic benefit to acting on climate change and why when everyone kept talking about cost Labor could have been talking about the growth of industries and new jobs and talking about expanding wealth and expanding um, people's, you know, incomes through new industry, which is what the economy needs. Um, But they didn't really do that. They just said, oh, but, you know, it's just what if we don't act? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, Although there's a part of me that wonders just what the hell Labor could do on climate policy that would ever be popular because it seems like whatever they adopt, they get smashed over. (laughs) So it's, I don't know, they must be tearing their hair out, Mm. you know. Well, it wasn't that visionary because, as we said, Labor picked up the National Energy Guarantee, which was a Liberal Party policy. So I think Labor thought they were being cautious and moderate on climate policy and, and attempting to be, in a way, bipartisan. Partisan, you know, I, I, I almost wonder if they should have simply said, we'll bring back Julia Gillard's carbon tax, you know, and because we know what it cost, here's what it cost over two yeah. years for the economy. Yeah. And look, the economy grew in that time. There mm-hmm. were however many hundred thousand jobs added during the carbon tax. There's nothing to worry about with the carbon tax, you know. Would that have worked? Oh, probably not. They probably would have absolutely got poleaxed, you know, they're bringing back the carbon tax, you know, mm-hmm. can you imagine how that would have gone? So, I actually don't know what they're meant to do, actually. Damned either way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, let's just really close out, I guess, with where we're now at, given that um, the Coalition have been successful. They've already said that they want to get their tax uh, changes in before June 30. That may not happen. We're not sure because of the AEC needing to finalise all the votes. There's a whole process that needs to happen. The ATO has said that there's possible that we could make it retrospective, but that does make things quite messy. Um, so given that that was their main policy agenda, are there other things that the Coalition has raised as being part of their plan do we know what they will be doing for the next half a year to a year so i think the first thing to say is it's scott morrison's liberal party now so by by fighting the campaign in a presidential style really completely around himself as the leader and banishing the entire front bench really apart from frydenberg from any kind of campaign presence morrison has been able to exert tremendous authority within the party after this victory he'll be able to reshape the liberal party in his own image in a more suburban you know petty bourgeois small business uh you know, you know, sort of the quiet Australians that he was talking about in his in his victory speech. Um, that will absolutely be his kind of shtick now for the next three years. And in terms of policy, I think it'll be steady as she goes. You know, they'll be focused on delivering the tax cuts and, and just talking about how they're good at the economy. Actually, they've got some big economic problems ahead because the economy's in trouble, as we know. Um, and, and a lot of these problems aren't going away. Of course, climate change is not going away. All of the social problems that Australia faces will not be solved by this election victory. These guys are not going to be able to find jobs for all of those guys in central Queensland, even if the Adani mine goes ahead. So, you know, I, I think they've got their work cut out. But in the short term, at least, to the victor, the spoils, Morrison will be able to cement his authority. He'll be able to choose his, his own front bench and cabinet and he'll be able to set the agenda for the nation. Yes, and um, closing out our chat on coalition members, George Christensen had a 10% roughly swing to him. He's one of the more right-wing uh, people in the coalition. Oh, this is a victory for the right without yeah. any shadow of Peter a doubt. Dutton, yeah, Peter, Peter Dutton, also keeping his seat. Peter um, Dutton, 
enhanced his margin. Uh, all of those coalition MPs who removed Malcolm Turnbull back in August now feel Greg Hunt. they now yep. feel justified in that decision. The only person who seems to have really suffered at all is Tony Abbott. Yes, it is the one kind of strange uh, anomaly really of the election was for Abbott to lose. Um, obviously, Zali Stegall ran a very well resourced and very clever grassroots campaign there, and maybe. Maybe Tony's time had simply come, but uh, in Wentworth, Dave Sharma won that seat back off Karen Phelps. Um, none of the other so-called centrist independents were able to take Liberal no. seats. Uh, you know, Rob just Oakeshott wasn't successful. Rob Oakeshott lost in Cowper. Uh, Frydenberg comfortably retained. Uh, Koo Yong seeing off Oliver Yates and Julian Burnside. Uh, Higgins was retained for the Liberal Party from a strong challenge from Labor and the Greens. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I, I think um, the idea that you could hurt the Liberals in those inner-city, safe Liberal seats has been proven incorrect. Yes, state and federal politics are quite different. They really are. Yeah. And then finally, Ben, uh, Labor Party, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we now have to uh, endure the campaigning yes. around the country, which will be <laughs> the Labor leadership sideshow. Oh, I'll switch off, I think, unless you're an actual <laughs> Labor member. Um, you know, I think the best thing for the Labor Party to do would actually be not to have a leadership uh, leadership change. I actually think they should just let Shorten limp on for six months and while they lick their wounds and work out what the hell went wrong. But uh, in the end, they're not going to do that. They're going no. to have a leadership change. So it looks like the two candidates will be Anthony Albanese and Chris Bowen. Uh, there was talk that Jim Chalmers, the Queensland right-winger, would put his hand up, but it looks yeah. as though he will swing in behind Bowen. And given that it's Bowen versus Albanese, I expect... Uh, Bowen to win because he'll have the, the backing of the right faction and should be able to ride over Albanese. It will be an interesting test actually for Labor's party democracy because we know the rank and file members prefer Albanese. Mm -hmm. So as they did in the last contest. Indeed, indeed. So this will be it'll be an interesting an interesting contest. And of course Bowen is the architect of the franking credits policy. So that's a very, very interesting thing for him to have to try and explain why mm -hmm. he wants to be leader of the party when he's one of the key reasons really for this election defeat yep he has a lot of baggage political baggage now now that the election result has occurred but also it highlights the fact that bill shorten had a lot of baggage given that he was one of the key architects of the downfall of kevin rudd and julia gillard there was a lot of lack of trust and he wasn't particularly likable in terms of how the electorate perceived him it'll be interesting to see whether chris bowen can change around his um, appearance and the way that others perceive him in the electorates. Yes, Bowen is young enough, but is he popular? Mm. I think that remains to be seen, and we'll only know when we see how he matches up against Morrison. My gut feeling is that he'll match up quite poorly against Scott Morrison. Uh, I think Labor will be best served by jumping to the to a younger generation, somebody like Chalmers or maybe Mark Butler from South Australia. It is unfortunate for the party that Tanya Plibersek has decided not to put her hand up, and maybe that's tactical because maybe she thinks that by playing a long game she mm. could perhaps come in and take the leadership shortly before the next election and have a chance in that respect. Um, politics is a funny business. Uh, who knows what will happen? Yep, wait and see. Thank you, Ben, for coming in to talk federal election and federal politics. It was my pleasure, Amy.
You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM and we've been speaking federal politics with Ben Altham from New Matilda. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. I'm now delighted to have with me in the studio two wonderful ecologists and um, they are here to talk about a very important issue. I'll introduce them first. Dr Georgia Garrard, who is a research fellow at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT and also Professor Brendan Wintle, who is a professor in conservation ecology at the University of Melbourne, and he's also director of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub. And you may um, have heard of Brendan because he's been on the show at least two times, I think, already. So, yeah, he's a veteran now, and uh, it's good to um, to have him back in the studio. So, hi there, Georgia. Hi, Amy. Thanks hi, for having me. And Brendan. Great to be here again. Amy, thanks. It's great to have you both. Thank you for taking the time out to talk about something that's pretty important, even more important given the election results, because with the two major parties, environmental policy actually became kind of a big issue, particularly for Labor. Labor did make a big issue of the environment, and I remember previous elections where the environment really wasn't front of mind for voters, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't one of their top three to five issues Mm. and uh, suddenly Mm. climate change but also just the environment more broadly has become a very big issue Mm. for voters. Have you got that sense as well given that you're both working in ecology and conservation? Yeah I think so. I mean I think this time I was feeling pretty hopeful. I felt like you know the environment was back on the agenda for the first time in a long time. which I guess is why I'm now feeling slightly disappointed. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was a, a strong sense of uh, the increasing importance of environment uh, in the weeks leading up to the election. Unfortunately, it really only seemed to build strongly in the last week uh, up to the election, which gave us a limited amount of time to uh, propose bold new policies uh, for <laughs> for <laughs> potential incoming governments to adopt. Um, mm. But, the, yeah, the statistics were really strong. I think um, for many people it was over 30% in one poll. Uh, it was a top issue. Um, and uh, over 60% of people had it in their top four. Um, we haven't had that mm. kind of, um, uh, I guess, attention or support for the environment for quite a while. And, you know, uh, it's not without good reason. As mm. we know, uh, there's um, there's been some really compelling uh, reports come out recently, uh, including the UN Global Assessment on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services that paints a pretty stark picture. It really does. And it did get a decent amount of coverage when it came out at the beginning of May. It really was interesting that it was basically picking up on pre-existing research and really doing a fully comprehensive look at the global picture when it comes to extinction. What were some of the key learnings for Australia in terms of what is wrong or what's going badly and what we could be doing to address it? Well, look, uh, the the findings were very stark globally, and we know uh, how they how they reflect in Australia as well. Uh, there's a couple of key things that are probably worth mentioning. Um, the the report found that 75 percent of land globally is significantly altered, uh, you know, due to human activity. 
85% of wetlands globally lost. That actually was a real surprise to me. I, I was shocked at how extreme that is because we know how crucial wetlands are for biodiversity and uh, it's, a, it's a big deal in this country too where, um, where wetlands are so scarce. There's a couple of high-profile issues at the moment um, around wetlands. Maybe we'll come back to those in a minute, but, um, but that was really stark. The other issue uh, that was uh, w- it was great to see this actually reported in the global assessment is that we've wiped over 700 and 570 billion dollars off our agricultural productivity mm-hmm. globally due to the loss of pollinators uh, and so mm-hmm. that's a really you know if that doesn't hit home to everybody uh, who needs to worry about the sort of services that biodiversity provides then I'm not sure what will so that was incredibly stark and the Australian context we've got uh, I guess so many depressing facts and figures about that uh, you know uh, our research centre for example has a thing called the threatened species index now that tracks how um, the abundance of threatened species is changing over time and since 1985 uh, when well I was in high school I'm not sure if you guys were uh, <laughs> you know we've seen a halving on average in the abundance of threatened bird populations. So Mm. across Australia, on average, all threatened bird populations have halved since 1985. So you can imagine what that looks like on a graph. It's a very steep decline for these species that says, even though we've already lost 27 Australian birds since European occupation of Australia, 35 mammals, um, that trajectory is linear downwards for birds and for mammals. Um, We've lost two mammals in the last decade, uh, which basically paints extinctions over time as linear upwards. So we really are not flattening the curve at this stage. It's still going full ahead. So we really have to think about what we do to address that urgently. Mm. And this hasn't come out of nowhere. We've really been seeing this issue build over decades. Mm. And as you said, the trends have become clearer and probably more steep, unfortunately. Um, Anecdotally, I can definitely understand when you're saying about birds and Mm. populations being halved because coming from the country in a regional area... You know, it's we're very lucky to have a lot of birds and bird sounds, and you know, you you notice it more because they're mm. around you more, mm. um, and that's really all I can hear is not traffic but birds <laughs> usually, mm. which is lovely. But you know, we have heard less from birds Mm. in terms of their song and even you know in places like lawn for example it seems like there's more less and less of the things like kookaburras which are quite common Mm. yeah absolutely i mean the statistics are very stark uh for, for for threatened birds especially um but overall, bird species mm. uh, are doing worse, and uh, and it's obviously birds are are there. You 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 feel them and see them every day uh, through their song. But for a lot of people, this is the same story for you know blue tongue lizards, uh, for koalas even. I know mm. that there are a couple of small patches in Australia where koalas are still very highly abundant, so much so that they cause some trouble. But um, for pretty much the rest of Australia, koala populations have been crashing. That's very well documented and so people who were used to having koalas in their backyard or on the edge of their suburb in Brisbane uh, in in New South Wales all of New South Wales and southeast Queensland they're just not there anymore mm. so it's a, it's a huge impact on I guess the people's connection with nature um, and the opportunity for kids to be inspired and engaged 
by nature. So, yeah, these 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 losses are already having a, a huge impact in this country, I think. Yeah, that's interesting um, because, yeah, as you said, there are some of those very select areas where there are quite a few koalas, like the Otway Ranges, mm. where they've eaten so much of the trees that there's whole patches where they've basically mm. died, yes, <laughs> which is right. quite um, shocking when you see the pictures. But, uh, yeah, I wasn't really aware that it's a, quite a broad issue across Australia because a, a koala is quite iconic for Australia mm. and it's mm. the number one thing I think most tourists would come to see is a kangaroo and a koala. Mm. Well, we, we had um, estimates of pure, pre-European um, koala abundance as monstrous in multiple, multiple millions, probably more uh, koalas than we have people now, which is um, wow. which is a rather shocking thought, really. <laughs> and uh, and you know there was a there was a fur export trade in koalas, mm-hmm. and um, that was part of the initial decline in koalas. But of course now uh, the impact is through habitat loss, and it's through roads, and it's through. Um, dogs and cats and foxes and disease and apparently all koalas unfortunately uh, or very many koalas are very susceptible to the chlamydia disease uh, that causes them to go blind and and, uh, and ultimately die and apparently they're much more susceptible when they're under stress so when they're hassled daily by dogs and cats and you know cars and can't mm. move around can't move from tree to tree without you know being attacked then they're much more susceptible to these chlamydia um, infections unfortunately so yeah we, re- we we think now that the total Australian koala population is somewhere around 300,000 could possibly be even much less so we've seen an order of magnitude drop in koala abundance across the nation uh, since European occupation so really big changes yeah well when you think that Australia could let that happen to some uh, animal that already has a lot of goodwill mm. in terms of the population and a mm. lot of fascination with that particular animal, then what about the others that aren't as iconic? They're probably a lot smaller in some cases and not really front of mind for most people. Mm. Um, and that brings us to part of um, the case study that we were going to talk mm-hmm. about with this discussion about environmental conservation, environmental laws extinction is um, the Western Grassland Reserve, which is um, I honestly wasn't didn't know much about grasslands, and I'm ashamed to say that now because uh, we've spoke, looked about looked at a lot of the other things like forests, beautiful forests like Tulangi, and you know there's so many stunning landscapes and different types of environment that kind of people will go to and hike in and visit, um, but Interestingly, the Western Grassland Reserve, I go past on my train Mm. every week Mm -hmm. and uh, I looked out the window yesterday and I saw a sign and it said Ravenhall Mm. and I was like, oh, I wonder what that is. I like noted it down and Googled it on my phone because it's in the West and it was between um, two outer suburb stops that are quite booming really in terms of the populations um Tarnit and Deer Park and uh, I googled it and um there didn't seem to be a huge amount of information about it I found some quite detailed reports on it when they were originally setting it aside Mm -hmm. um and the Department of Justice has kind of a role to play in um in that because there is prison infrastructure in that area but um when I looked out the window it didn't look very 
healthy or happy mm. to me and I'm that's just a really basic observation I might might be wrong but it didn't have you know really tall grass it didn't look native it looked like it had kind of been this boggy like <laughs> soil had been you know raised and tossed up and it, you know there was just like bits of green yeah. and soil and it didn't particularly look like a reserve yeah so i i would hoping you might be able to shed some light on not just on ravenhall but on this thing called the western grassland reserve and where it is and what it is actually supposed to be sure um i think you've touched right there on one of the big challenges for grassland conservation in that it's not a particularly um i guess from a distance not a particularly charismatic ecosystem type unless you've got you know i can imagine big rolling hills like Mm. huge landscapes which we used to have in victoria so basically everywhere from the west of melbourne right across to the south australian border except for a few things like the grampians were these kind of native grasslands and so you know, I mean, we can romanticise things like the Americans talk about their prairies and um, things like that. This is our version of a prairie, I guess. But um, many people's experiences with grasslands are, as you've just, I guess, described, which are that they are these kind of, you know, to to many people, they look like a kind of weed-infested um, patch of land that needs to be mowed and, you know, people are worried about snakes in grasslands. So they have this real PR problem. But I think the beauty of grasslands is, and I spent quite a long time on my hands and knees basically looking (laughs) at plants in grasslands, but that's where the the beauty of the grasslands comes out when you actually get in them and you start to realise that what you thought was just a big patch of one type of brown grass is, you know, hundreds of different plant species, many of which have beautiful little flowers um, and they're extremely diverse ecosystems and from, you know, before European settlement, extremely important ecosystems for Indigenous people as well, provided a lot of food um, and you know, were the grazing landscapes that were kind of cultivated in order to um, attract Um, kangaroos and and other things for food so they're extremely important and I think really beautiful ecosystems Um, but they do have this this public relations problem Um, and they also um, occur in some of the most productive landscapes in Victoria so they occur in these basalt plains which are to the west which means that the the soils in these landscapes are much younger And so they're very productive, which meant that we like to, um, when Europeans arrived, there was um, a lot of excitement about their role as as grazing landscapes and and agricultural landscapes. And so what that means is that the grasslands that are left um, have been modified over time. Over the last 200 years, we've seen sheep grazing and, and agriculture move into these landscapes. And so what's left is generally a little bit changed from what it was in the past. Mm. But it also has meant, you know, they, the poor old grasslands also occur in the in the parts of the city now where the only parts left to develop really. Melbourne is expanding to the west and to the north. And so the grasslands are kind of in the way um, of that, many people feel like. Um, and so, you know, we've got a situation now where we've got less than 1% left of this ecosystem. So we're talking about one of Australia's most threatened ecosystems. Um, and that 1% um, is kind of really hotly contested now. You know, that we know as conservationists that when you've got less than 1% left, that's really time to be pulling out all the stops to protect mm. this, this ecosystem type. Um, but, you know, the growth of Melbourne at times seems unstoppable. And so 
the rest and grassland reserves came out of um, a process, a planning process that was undertaken in about 10 years ago now. Yep, under the so, Brumby government. Yes. yes, and so before this time what would happen is when an area of land was to be developed, um, people would go in and work out, you know, do an ecological impact assessment and say what is in this patch of land that we need to protect and then what we're going to do is if we can't find a way around not protecting it so if we have to develop it then we're going to protect another bit of land somewhere else and that's that's the offsetting policy that we have that we offset a loss in a in a urban growth area for a gain somewhere else and the the grassland reserves came out of this thing called the melbourne strategic assessment which which was a process that came about where people thought when we do this kind of piecemeal one at a time approach um it's it's costly it's um and it's not particularly strategic from a planning perspective so we're doing these kind of piecemeal assessments and also from an ecological perspective we know that what we end up getting is this kind of death by a thousand cuts where each little impact is not seen as each little development is not seen as having a big impact but when you add up all of those little impacts over over time Mm -hmm. what we see is a really big ecological impact so the strategic assessment was meant to do the whole idea was we decide now where Melbourne is going to grow to and which areas are going to be developable and which areas need to be protected um, and we make that decision now so that we can just move ahead without this this incremental assessment process um, and that's what was done and so now we have this this new urban growth boundary for Melbourne we have the growth areas identified we've identified areas within those growth areas that are too too significant to be cleared and so there's there are small patches of grassland and other ecosystems that will be protected in those areas but everything else is to be developed and for the offset for that so so the idea was to have this big strategic offset and not have these small patches of protected grassland all over the landscape Um, and so so the, the Melbourne grassland reserves were identified as a really large patch of land that would be this big strategic offset for grasslands. So the idea is that we have 15,000 hectares of grasslands protected outside mm. the urban growth boundary and they are, they are kind of the, the trade-off, I guess, for what we've lost or yeah. going to lose inside the, the boundary. Mm, which was a rezoning of 41,000 hectares of grassland and um, farmland. Yep, that's right. So it's pretty big. It's pretty rezoning. big. That, I mean, I mean, you've you've seen the growth areas yourself. You know, when we talk about growth areas, we're talking about really vast areas of yep. outer Melbourne. Yeah, huge um, housing areas where it's like we could just picture it's probably like less than a meter between houses like it's just house fence house fence all kind of looking quite similar mm-hmm. and then yeah when it, with the raven hall part there was a bit of an industrial kind of area off to the you know farther side yeah. but yeah a lot of it was housing and residential yeah. areas now which it's not wasn't before and yeah they're even still digging big holes in that area to create brand new um areas and housing mm-hmm. you know developments and mm. yeah that's yeah right. yeah i think that's the that's the thing isn't it we we gave away a lot yeah. in that process in terms of um grasslands and agricultural areas so we want to get something significant and well managed uh, and actually that 
contributes to the conservation of this amazing ecosystem mm. and the species that are in it. Mm. Um, and, and so far we haven't. No. Uh, and I think that's the that's the really tragic part when we sort of paid a lot in 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 as a as a society and we we really haven't seen the big strategic payoff in terms of a a large well managed yeah, uh, conservation right. area. And I think that's the disappointment with this process. And these strategic assessments are occurring all over the country. Mm. Uh, they are part of the the way that the Commonwealth and state governments do planning now. Uh, and we're sort of seeing a similar issue in that we're giving away a lot. Uh, there's one that's just sort of in negotiation in Perth at the moment. Um, we're going to give away a lot. On average, around 20% of all the natural variation in the region that they're doing the assessment, including 20% of the ranges of all of these threatened and endangered species. And there's no real clarity around what we're actually going to get back for that. Mm. Uh, and I think we would we would say at this stage it's a long way off a net gain for biodiversity. It's almost certainly going to be a major net loss. Mm. And so that's something we really have to fix with these mm. sorts of big planning processes. Yeah, I was interested to find out that um, the federal government under the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act mm -hmm. had... Um, marked the, the grasslands as being important and also endangered or threatened. Mm. And so the, the state government had to engage with the federal government to even take it away and rezone it yeah. and to then put in place this offset policy. Yeah. Um, but then what does the federal government do if the state government doesn't fulfil their end of the bargain? Because their end of the bargain was to create mm -hmm. um, 15,000 hectares of uh, reserve land, grassland, and um, that was by the end of 2020, I think. Yeah. And we're pretty much getting there. And how much percentage we uh, made? Well, people like throw around numbers like 10% at the moment. At the yeah. last report, so they do a progress report every year, we had 1,244 hectares secured, so 8.3% so of the reserve wow. had been secured and at that that's, time. These um, have been voluntary, like buybacks like the state government is buying off private land hold landholders yeah, or yeah. owners and um they're not compulsorily acquiring land no. in order to fulfill this promise that said i believe they in the legislation enabled like that is a possibility they created that instrument yeah if they needed to do it of course it's quite controversial yeah. when anyone you know takes away someone's land and you know obviously pays for it but it's compulsory. Yeah. I mean, is that is that one of the issues that really there hasn't been a huge desire to voluntarily sell land to the government? Yeah, I think so. So they put this public acquisition overlay over the land, which meant that I think it can be unsold a couple of times or maybe one time before it's sold to the government, but it's not compulsory, as you say. And so I think the approach was to then start working with landowners to facilitate this kind of um, acquisition of land over the period of 10 years. But, yeah, you can imagine there are a lot of people out there who were you know, pretty upset about the the idea that they can only sell their land to the government and yeah. didn't particularly want to sell their land. Um, and so I think that's been one of the reasons why it has been so slow. But the other reason has been that um, the 
the government can only buy the land when the developers start developing out in the growth areas because the money that's used to buy the land is tied to the losses that are occurring in the growth areas. So as a grassland gets cleared in the growth areas, the developers pay a levy that goes to the state government, which is then used to buy the land. And and I think what's happening is that the development is going ahead slower than they thought it was going to. So, um, you know, I don't have the the exact figures on this, but I've been told that the the figures that they used to predict the, the rate of growth in Melbourne were extremely high, so they were on the high end of what we would expect to see, and so it's not happening as fast as we thought. Um, and also I have heard um, that developers are starting now to find ways around not developing the grasslands in their property because they don't want to pay the levy, which is kind of ironic because that is exactly probably what we would want developers to have been doing in the past is work out how you can get your yield, your housing yields or things that you need from your block of land without destroying the native grassland that exists there. So it's a kind of ironic situation now that, you know, that's what's happening. And it's it's quite sad, I guess, that we're now... This grassland is now dependent on this money coming in and Mm. I think probably... You know, the way that it could have been avoided would be for the government to have put that money up front to buy the reserve at the start. Yep, and pay the right price so that people don't get angry about conservation. Yeah. You know, we, we, and maybe we'll talk about this in a minute, how much we do and don't spend on conservation. If we really want this, if we want to conserve this ecosystem, the species that depend on it, and people's lives are, you know, at stake in terms of the their you know the money that they need to get for their properties uh, for a fair deal, then mm. we just have to pay it. You yeah. know, and that's the I think that's the really disappointing thing. And as you say, yes, it's good if we have developers deciding not to develop bits of grassland that they are allowed to develop. But of course, those areas aren't going to get managed no, that's no. Right. in this strategic way. Yeah. That's actually going to bring the conservation benefits we need to get. So it's you know it's a lose lose, unfortunately, yes. in that mm. in that context. Yep. So we we really need to rethink this. And I don't think it's too late for the state government to make a decision to solve this. It will take money yeah. um, and a big investment. And uh, but I think now's the time when mm-hmm. you've got a government that, you know, has a pretty good mandate to uh, to do this sort of thing and try and solve big environmental problems. Because unless we start having this transformation about how governments work, we're not going to solve these big mm. problems that are discussed in the, in the UN report. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, you raised some important points in terms of the state government's ability to take action because they do have a pretty big mandate. Mm. They have put forward a biodiversity plan that takes us up to 2037. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is already a strategy and a commitment to the environment at some level. Um, it's surprising to me that the state government has a surplus and is quite proud of the way they've managed the economy and they're getting have been recently up until now been getting quite a lot of money in stamp duties because of um, the housing market which is only now slowing a little bit so you know i think that surely the government at least the state level could choose to put funds into this area and as bill shortens has put forward during the entire campaign this is all about choices mm. and so you know labor in this at the federal level made a choice about climate change and made a choice about you know the environment and put that ranked that higher than some of the other areas mm. so do you think that the state government has the capacity to prioritize the grasslands 
Oh, I think absolutely. Of course we do. And, and let's not focus solely on the state government. This is the choice of every person when we uh, when we vote and when we um, feed back to politicians and through the media and through our, our public debates if we are raising these issues and saying yes this is what we want mm. spend some money on this um, because as a nation we can afford this mm. and, and this is something that I think we you know we've gotten to the point where governments will say well well you know it's you're trading the environment against schools and health no there's lots of other ways uh, to make money for the environment and there's lots of money being spent on things that could be spent on the environment um, one of my um, I guess unfavorite facts and figures at the moment mm. is that as a nation we spend 2.5 billion dollars a year on cat care and food and we we spend 1.7 billion dollars a year on pet grooming and and so it just strikes me that you know okay maybe that money's not all sitting in the state government coffers ready to spend on a western grasslands reserve but as a nation, uh, we we have the wealth to do this, and uh, and we could, for those amounts of money, basically end extinction in Australia for the next twenty or thirty years because we could institute the emergency care that particular species need to stay in the game, and we can start to change those big processes like, you know, um, feral predators and feral herbivores that are doing so much damage with that kind of money invested. Now that's a glib trade off, of course. We're not going to get that that uh, 4.2 billion or whatever it is suddenly mm. invested in the environment and away from people's pets i'm not suggesting that but i think there is the capacity in this country to do this we just have to make the choice to do it mm. so if we're talking about the differences and the types of actors who can be involved in conservation um we've been talking about the state government the federal government and maybe we'll get to the legal elements of that in a minute. But if we're talking about the grasslands and the fact that a lot of, um, well, if we're thinking only 8% is publicly owned or acquired mm -hmm. through this program, then there's a huge amount, 92% roughly, that is privately owned. Mm -hmm. How do we engage those people who own that land to actually do things and presumably some yeah. already are because yeah, I know right. there's groups like land care and other ways that private landholders do proactively yep. you know look after their land but yep. what can people do yeah well I think I mean and I think it's probably worth saying too that the department the Victorian department actually runs a couple of programs that um, assist in this interim period so they're they're providing weed management assistance and and grassland um, yeah improvement assistance to land on, landowners who want to do that um, but I think you know and, and this comes back to the Victoria's um, the Victoria biodiversity strategy which has you know two pillars as attached to it one is that we're going to protect you know the, the typical stuff that you see in conservation um, strategies the other is that you know what we want to do is reconnect people with nature and have all Victorians acting for nature and and that's that's something that we've spent a bit of time in our research group thinking about is how do we re-engage people in a way that makes them act for nature in the future and that's that's something that Victorian governments grappling with the South Australians and New South Wales lots of state governments are now starting to realize that the success of conservation really hinges on engagement of the general public um and so unfortunately i don't think we have all the answers right now but you know we've been thinking about well what what can people do for biodiversity and you know some of them are things like you know sadly in australia 
urban development is one of the biggest things that um, if we're talking about consumption, like what do we buy and consume, urban development is one of the things that has the biggest impact on biodiversity. And so people can think about, you know, where they're getting you know what where they're buying their house what's what's gone into the production of their house but i think one of the like, the big opportunities i guess that is being missed with this grassland reserve is that it's probably you know it when it was first announced there was this kind of sense of enthusiasm and excitement that this is a chance to really showcase this ecosystem and create a national park you know that could attract people out of melbourne Mm -hmm. to come and see what's right on their doorstep you know if we had a beautiful example of this critically endangered ecosystem right here and um and i think that for me is where the real i guess tragedy of the situation at the moment comes in is that you know it could have been so much um and beyond just the conservation of of that ecosystem could have really helped to connect people with our own native ecosystems, you know, right on our back doorstep. Mm. We so. need to start by getting the car bodies and the prickly pear yeah. out of the reserve. I mean, there's some, some pretty basic management things that need That's to be right. done, and that takes a bit of money, but, but not, not a huge much. amount of money. That's right. So, you know, I mean, I think that the grassland reserves get a bit of a bad rap. People think, look at them and think they're ugly. Well, it's partly the way we present them. Yeah. Um, if you just looked at a tiny bit of... Um, Hugh Jackman's unshaved cheek, you would say, oh, that's actually Ugh. kind of ugly. But if you look at the whole thing, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And so, you know, the grassland reserves can be like that. If we can look at it at scale, yeah. well managed, um, and to some extent at the right time of year, um, yeah. Yeah, then right. uh, we can showcase a really amazing ecosystem. Um, and I think we also need to connect better with it culturally because yes. it's, it's such an important ecosystem for, for um, traditional owners. So I, I really think there's a lot to be done here that's not being done um, and we need to get that get that happening. The other thing that the UN report talked about was transformation. We need transformative change if we're going to actually do something here uh, to conserve species and to avoid this sort of ecosystem collapse that we seem to be sort of plummeting towards. Well, transformative change can be transforming the way we do development Mm. in these kinds of environments and George has worked a fair bit on this biodiversity sensitive urban design it's a really important concept Um, so rather than developers avoiding their little patch of grassland that's on the place that they want to develop embrace it Um, turn it into a feature of the development um, make it a healthy functioning wonderful grassland that's a feature of the place Mm. where these people are going to live and develop Mm. around it and incorporate it into the development such a important but doable transformation so that type of thing plus Mm. the sort of transformative agriculture two major transformation opportunities that i think the un report was pointing to when it said we need transformative change if we're going to change this trajectory Mm. How does one facilitate those links between business and property developers and, you know, people like yourself, Georgia, who's doing Mm. work, very practical work that has, like, really practical potential outcomes for this whole area of, you know, the outer suburbs in the West? Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's an extremely good question and and, um, one that we've, you know, probably, I guess, still grappling with is that at the moment the incentives aren't necessarily there for developers to change the way they do development and they've got a business model and it works for them and that's fine. I think what we're, we're seeing some developers now recognising that if they can incorporate nature that gives them an edge that they yeah. can use as a selling point point. Um, 
and there are you know a few developers out there who can really who are at least in their in their talk quite visionary about about this you know how can we do this how can we make this transformation um but it's it's still far from the norm and i think you know finding the right mix of incentives and policy you know when we're not there yet and i think it will take both the 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 developer incentive and also some government policy to kind of help to help kind of guide development down a new path because it's you know it's risky for people to do it's new Mm. um yeah but people are trying things aren't they and so if we have some cutting edge examples of how this can be done really well and work really well and actually make money for developers like be a good business model and a good environment model Mm. then i think we can we can really sell this a lot better we just need a few examples and you know there are some that are starting to to approach this um and so hopefully we're not too far off that but you don't have to look you know, very far to look for um, great examples of nature-based solutions in yes. cities and suburbs, um, especially when you start to look to other countries where it's become a real feature. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think the big challenge for conservation now is to not let that nature-based solutions get too far ahead, you know, that not to let it get too far ahead. There's some really great stuff that's been done on urban forests and greening cities for a whole range of reasons. And with not too many tweaks, that could also be used for really great conservation outcomes but um you know at the moment i think it's moving it's moving a little bit faster probably than conservation has anticipated and and so the big challenge for us now is to leverage you know jump on board this kind of enthusiasm for greening and get it to deliver some really great nature outcomes as well Mm. yep and in terms of like we're talking about the fact that these grasslands can look beautiful particularly in spring when a lot of the wildflowers are Mm -hmm. blooming um are there any good examples that anyone in in victoria could visit on a good day or in a good season to see what it would look like up close yeah yeah there's some beautiful examples so um evan street grassland in sunbury is probably um the most well-known really great example um and it's I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. If you were to go there late October, early November, depending on how wet it's been, um, you know, you'll see a really diverse grassland ecosystem there. And they've done a lot of work there too to make sure that people can enjoy this grassland without destroying it, which is, you know, the the trade-off that we're mm. that we, you know, we have to make now. If we we need people to engage with these grasslands, but also, you know, we don't want four hundred people you know standing on a one hectare patch of grassland (laughs) at the same time so um yeah so evan street grassland in sunbury is probably the best one yeah but that really highlights the importance of getting some big examples of that's right really intact grasslands because if so much pressure yeah if everyone's on that tiny little grassland (laughs) it's gonna suffer um especially if every kid under seven takes one flower then um yeah you know you've got an impact but if you've Mm. got a really large extensive grassland uh that everyone can enjoy i think that's a it's a it's a hugely important aspiration yeah i think for the state government yep. not just in conserving the ecosystem but but connecting people mm. with nature so so you know a bit more investment in making that happen i think please is a is yep. a reasonable request i think so yeah yeah i would agree <laughs> um 
You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM, and I've been speaking with Dr. Georgia Garrard from RMIT and Professor Brendan Wintle from the University of Melbourne. And they both are ecologists and work in conservation and so many other areas relating to conservation and the environment. And we have been talking about the Western Grassland Reserve and um, the state government's role, and also uh, property developers and their role, individual citizens and our role in um, really conserving those very important areas that maybe aren't as traditionally sexy as some of the others that get our attention. Often we like think about beautiful forests and old growth trees and that does get you know people quite passionate but it's time to get a bit more passionate about the grasslands. So um, to close out our discussion I just wanted to talk about the big picture when it comes to the environment. Now that we have had the federal election we know where we stand I guess in terms of where the state governments are at and where the federal governments are at. Um, So I'm going to bring back in Georgia and Brendan. Um, Now, I know that uh, there was a Senate inquiry into um, the extinction crisis and it was an important um, exercise in gathering evidence and coming up with, I guess, a plan and also understanding the Australia-wide picture, um, which is really important. Brendan, in terms of the conservation and what... Australia needs to do at a big picture because you're before talking about transformational change and we need to be doing big things at the moment obviously piecemeal is also important to do what you can in the area that you're in Mm. but you know you also need that big picture thinking so what can Australia do at a, a big level in terms of putting the right funding the adequate amount of funding into stopping the extinction of birds, mammals, flora, fauna, all yeah. that kind of thing. Like, what what are we looking at? Yeah, look, uh, I mean, the good news is we know that when you spend money on biodiversity, it works. You actually save species. The US, they spend the equivalent of about $2 billion Australian dollars a year on keeping their threatened species in the game, and it works. The average recovery for their listed threatened birds since they get since they've been listed is 624%. That's a six-fold increase on average in threatened birds that are listed in the US. And that's because the US mandates protection of critical habitats for those birds, so that's a legal instrument. It also mandates spending on recovery, and so they have to do it or else they get sued. Mm. And so that kind of spending actually makes a difference. Now, what we found is that Australia is an egregious underspender. The Commonwealth Government and all of the state's governments combined put in a targeted amount of around $120 million a year for threatened species recovery. So we have 200 more species on our list in Australia than they have in the United States, and yet we spend an order less than an order of magnitude less than, than what they spend on recovery in the United States. And and that's a key part of the difference. So we've figured out just looking at, on average, what you'd need to spend for each taxonomic group to keep it in the game. No more extinctions and ultimately delisting is the main objective. And we figured out that you would need to spend between $1.5 and $2 billion a year in Australia on targeted threatened species recovery. Now, that can be done. Remember, you Mm. know, uh, well, it's probably not going to happen now, but we would have redeemed around $5 billion a year just on closing tax loopholes for franking credits. There's lots of other examples. Fuel excise for mining companies. There's, uh, and remember, we spend $2.7 billion a year on cat care. So as a nation, I think we can afford 
$1.5 billion a year to ensure we don't lose any more of this incredible natural heritage, stealing from future generations the opportunity to see these species in the wild. That's the first. The second is renovating our, our legislation and our regulations to ensure that there's less ministerial um, discretion. We do have to pay for recovery when a species gets listed. Mm. Um, and that we have critical habitat areas that are not negotiable. Mm. They're not offsetable because they're the last 1% of, a, of an ecosystem or the, the last bit of habitat for a black-throated finch, for example. So there's a bunch of examples like this, of things that we can tangibly do as a nation to totally reverse this um, tragic environmental loss, this biodiversity loss that we're currently seeing, and it is within our power and it is within our budgets to do it. So that, to me, mm. that's the key message i think is mm. that we just have to get real but but be optimistic because if we do spend the money the evidence is that it'll work yeah yeah and just to put it in perspective again you know one of labor's many policies was child care and subsidizing child care and that was a four billion dollars so just one small policy area which does mm. have a big impact sure. can be you know allocated funds if you do have savings in other areas and also i guess what um i would say personally is that you don't need to find savings for something that's so critical Mm. as the extinction Mm. and you cannot reverse extinction so you know once it's happened it's happened and unfortunately you can't go oh god we should have done that whoops Mm. yeah absolutely i think i mean i think one of the 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 things to note about this is that, you know, Brendan was talking about this transformative change in agriculture and urban development, you know, as examples, that, that it's not going to be all costs, that there will be a payoff for investing in biodiversity and nature in both of those industries. I mean, you talked about the IPBES, um, the the costs associated with productive productivity yeah. in agriculture and we know that you know having nature in cities is really good for people's mental health mm. and well-being and and physical health and so it's not going to be all cost it just needs it needs an upfront kind of commitment at the moment that yeah, it will pay off in some ways and there's cost neutral options as well when we finally get serious about carbon sequestration the only way you can sequester carbon the only practical way still is through ecosystems and so why not sequester carbon through biodiverse ecosystems mm. so that we start spending that carbon money on restoring natural vegetation throughout eastern Australia where it's relatively easy to restore vegetation in mm. degraded agricultural land, provide a carbon benefit and provide a biodiversity, a habitat benefit. So there are big opportunities and they're not necessarily going to cost the earth. Mm. Yeah. Um both of you before we go if you had to i guess pick something that's really at the front of your mind at the moment that you're really passionate about and it might just be like a type of animal or you know a place in victoria like what we're talking about nature brings people joy it improves their mental well-being Mm -hmm. like what parts of nature improve your outlook on life or make you happy or you know what inspires you because your whole work is the environment so i'm really interested to know what you would think that's a great Mm. question yeah well I'll, I'll give you a place in two seconds that the thing that really inspires me is the people I work with, the people who are equally passionate about solving this problem, people like Georgia who are constantly thinking about how we do it and looking for practical solutions. The place that motivates me, I 
go uh, as many weekends as I can with my family to a little place called Midder Midder in the northeast of Victoria. We can still walk up the hill and see greater gliders. Not many people can do that anymore. They're, they're one of our rapidly declining species. Um, it's a wonderful place for accessing nature, an incredible privilege to be able to go there. Um, but there used to be bandicoots on the front lawn. They're not there anymore. Mm. And Nanny used to complain about them digging up the front lawn. And <laughs> so that's a you know, that's a, a wonderful place, but it also has a sad history and the bush is overrun with cats and foxes. Uh, and so it's a you know, everywhere unfortunately, everywhere mm. I go, I'm confronted by this challenge that we have, um, and to some extent the loss. But you have to focus on what's there and the beauty to stay to mm. stay in it, I think. That's right. Um, my place. I mean you know, a beautiful grassland is is a place to be. I, I think the thing that's the place that's kind of most struck me in recent years is travelling into Central Australia and and being in those desert landscapes where, you know, you you get the feeling that life is so precious. You know, everything's right on the edge all of the time because of the extreme conditions, mm-hmm. and that for me is a really, um, you know, inspirational place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well said. Now I've got some more places to go. <laughs> You're welcome anytime. Yeah, well, I I feel like even in just Victoria, there's so much that a lot of us don't get to see Victorians mm. who, you know, that's not, you know, part of my everyday job. Mm. And I would love the opportunity to go out more and be part of that and get completely immersed in yeah. nature and, yeah, listen to the birds more and, mm. yeah, feel it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both for coming in and um, really contributing such a, an immense part of knowledge, your knowledge, but also your insights, your own opinions and judgments that you've, um, you know, created over many years of expertise in this area. So thank you both. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks thank for a great you. show, Amy. Thank you. Great to be here. I've been speaking with Dr. Georgia Garrard, who is a research fellow at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT and I've also been speaking with Professor Brendan Wintle who is a uh, Professor in Conservation Ecology at the University of Melbourne and is also Director of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub. I'm very excited now to welcome into the studio Malcolm Farnsworth who he writes uh, po- about politics at the moment. He's writing for Mianjin, but of course he's written in the past for a range of publications, um, for Schwartz Media, for ABC's The Drum, and he's also, most importantly, um, such a wonderful curator of historical content and he has a wealth of knowledge given his um, previous career was as a teacher of history and politics and he publishes some great websites including australianpolitics.com which is um, I highly recommend it it has some amazing resources it is really the place to go for Australian politics content over the whole history of uh, Federation onwards in terms of uh, Australian elections and leaders and it's been such a a great resource for me uh, when I started out writing about federal politics in the, gosh, 2010 election I think it was, so many years ago now. And uh, that's how I found the wonderful Malcolm Malcolm Farnsworth was on Twitter. So I welcome Malcolm now and say thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, Amy. Good morning. And it's lovely to meet you in person 
and to have a proper conversation in person. It's much better than that uh, bizarre world online. Yes. We, we inhabit far too much. We do, yeah. And it, it has changed over time too, hasn't it? Yes. Yes, Twitter was quite good fun 10 years ago. Mm. It's a... I find it difficult to uh, stay there now. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the time I'm simply bored with it. Yeah. You know, quite aside from the whole lot of arguments about it being toxic. Um, but anyway. Mm. Well, it's true. I think I was attracted to Twitter because it was a place that you could have robust debates with people about policy. Ironically, it's not like that anymore. Um, and there was nuance, not always, but there was a lot of very earnestly passionate people who were very much interested in a contest of ideas. So it it seemed like it was, in its very early stages, a wonderful way to grow interest in politics. And that's still there if you can find that right sort of network and circle. Mm. Um, And a lot of the people I sort of developed an attachment to all those years ago, many of them are still there. So it's not entirely gone, but it has developed a... uh, you know, <laughs> a, a flavour now that uh, I find the unpalatable. Yes, it has been quite more um, black and white and quite polarising over some particularly mm. emotive issues uh, that people often get excited by in federal politics. But let's start out with what is the most recent and important news uh, we have been witnessing an election campaign that seemed to go on forever because we've really seen it happening since Scott Morrison was elected as leader of the Liberal Party when Malcolm Turnbull, of course, was turfed out. Who? Yeah, exactly. Who? Where's he gone? He was over in New York. Yes, he's back. Now he's back, He yeah. came back yesterday. <laughs> Interesting timing. And, um, and so we saw on Saturday night a, a result that not really many people were expecting at all. Um, the Liberal Party wasn't expecting it, Labor wasn't expecting it, the pollsters weren't expecting it, uh, the bookies weren't expecting it. So it means that although it's not really a massive victory in the sense that the coalition may have only a one or two seat majority, uh, we are kind of treating it with a lot more reverence because of the type of comeback the Liberals have made, mm. given all of their political infighting, aren't we? That, that, that is exactly right. Um, I was thinking just before back to the 1993 election, um, and that's the crucial date because that was when Keating uh, knocked over John Hewson, and it's 26 years on, we've had nine federal elections, mm. and Labor has only won two of them. And it's only one one with a majority, Kevin Rudd yep. in 207. And then in uh, 2010, uh, Gillard, of course, lost the majority and had to do the deal with the independents. Um, so it's been a very dry run for a quarter of a century in many respects for, for Labor. And I think that makes this defeat uh, all the worse. And I was thinking of 1993 because, of course, that was when the Liberals lost their fifth election in a row. Mm. And there were many people and many of these very silly people in the media who were saying that the Liberal Party is finished, you know, what does it do now? It's going to have to change. Um, And uh, they were so desperate that they started looking to people like Bronwyn Bishop. (laughs) 
to no, lead it. No, really? Um, <laughs> now, you know, where did all that go? At the very next, next election, in comes John Howard and he's there for 11 years. Mm. Uh, so it's easy to get excited about these things. Uh, you never quite know what the future uh, will bring and both Labor and Liberal are the established parties of government in our system. Uh, they are fairly resilient. They go through their ups and downs. They have their brawls, some of them massive and nasty, but they survive and they keep going. And uh, it's a mistake to just write them off, mm. just as it was a mistake to write off Scott Morrison. Yes, very <laughs> true. And... So, that's okay. And when we're talking about uh, primary votes, we've seen both parties kind of decline in terms of their primary vote. And your website has um, many resources, and one of them is showing over the history of our election cycles where the Labor's and the Liberals' party vote have been at various points in time. And we've only really seen a very healthy Labor primary vote with the Kevin Rudd 07 big election campaign that did seem to capture people's imagination at the time, particularly younger people. Um, what are the other uh, primary votes or highly successful Labor leaders who seem to capture our imagination? Well, um, if you look at the current situation, mm. these figures are bouncing around a little bit as the votes continue to come in, but they won't change uh, dramatically. And you're quite right, the, the Coalition's primary vote has dropped by about 0.7 of 1%, and they're on 41.4. The Labor vote is down about 0.8 and is on about 33.8. Now, that takes the ALP back to where it was in 2013. It made up about 1% at the last election, but now it's slipped back again. Now, the whole sort of fragmentation of the party system and the preferences that are now needed, it's all very well, but if your primary vote is 33%, you are not going to win. Mm. Um, that seems fairly apparent. Um, so both major parties have gone down a little bit. The overall swing as of this morning, I checked it just before I came in, the overall swing nationwide is 054 away from Labor towards the Coalition. Mm. So really, it's very similar to the last election. Um, now, just to sort of put a positive spin on it from the Labor side before I have to go do the rest of it, <laughs> the Labor Party has continued to win the working-class seats. Um, I think Peter Brent has pointed out on Twitter this morning that uh, in Western Sydney, the Labor uh, two-party vote in all those uh, traditional um, heartland seats is still 55%. What's happened is that a lot of them have had swings within them. So Chris Bowen, the Shadow Treasurer, for example, has had a 6% swing in his seat. He's still won it comfortably, mm. but he's down 6%. And that's a fairly common feature across um, Sydney, for example. Um, so it's not necessarily as bad as it looks. But... On the other hand, in Queensland, the Labor Party's primary vote has fallen to 27.3%. It's hard to imagine. I mean, it's bad enough having a national vote of 33, where only one in three people you meet in the street are prepared to vote for you. In Queensland, it's one in four. Um, and that is pretty much unsustainable. Yeah. And point of interest, the best 
jurisdiction for Labor in this election was the Northern Territory, where they've actually got 43% of the vote, um, which is sort of odd given what we tend to think of the uh, of the Northern Territory. Um, but you're quite right. This is a disastrous result for the Labor Party. Uh, very few people saw this coming. Uh, I didn't really see it coming, even though I'd been given enough indications. Um, you know, a Labor person had said to me just the other week, you know, most people think this should have been wrapped up weeks ago and it isn't. Uh, and things like that mm. normally are warning signs. But the polls were so consistent over three years that it really in the end uh, took everybody in um, and uh, I wrote last week for example that I thought the Liberal campaign was running on empty, mere culpa nonsense, <laughs> uh, I wrote that uh, the arithmetic seems too hard for the coalition well no, they've handled the, co the arithmetic very well um, and the disaster is that the Labor Party has if you exclude the two seats it picked up because of redistributions, that's yep. Corangamite and Dunkley in Victoria, they were notionally Labor. Well, they did win them and they got extra swings and, you know, they won them quite comfortably. But nobody's sort of counting them because of the redistribution. Mm. And therefore the seat of Gilmore in New South Wales is the only seat and that hardly comes as a surprise because the Liberals had a massive brawl. They pre-selected a candidate who they then dumped and then one another candidate became an independent and then they parachuted Warren Mundine in. Oh, yes. And the, uh, you know, the, the aggro in, in Gilmore has been quite something and it mm. was very hard to see them winning it. Um, and then aside from that, they've won nothing else. All this silly talk about all these seats um, has come to nothing. Yeah, blue and they've ended seats up losing, becoming marginal. Exactly, and, th and they, they've lost Braddon in Tasmania. Bass is probably going to go, although the postals that have come in this morning suggest it's still very close, so yeah. don't hold your breath on that one. Um, and then they've lost two seats, Herbert and Longman in um, in uh, Queensland, plus they've lost Lindsay in, uh, in New South Wales. Um, and the other interesting statistic, and I think I'm the only person who ever does this, probably because everybody else thinks it doesn't matter, but um, <laughs> of the 151 seats, 94 of them had a swing against the Labor Party on the primary vote. Now, that's 62% swung yeah. again. And then on the two-party vote, the final vote after preferences, 83 of them, just over half, had a swing against them. So what's happened in this election is sort of half the seats have swung to the Libs, half have swung to Labor, but the swings are very rarely big enough to change the result. And in that sense, it reminds me in a funny sort of way what happened in New South Wales back at the end of March, that there were swings, but they weren't changing seats. Yeah. There were only two or three seats. And whereas 20 seats changed hands federally last time, mm. um, uh, this time it'll be six, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's a very close result, but success and failure is measured by more than just the statistics. This is now becoming a major existential moment for the ALP about, you know, how do you get round the climate change issue in Melbourne as compared to Brisbane or further north of mm. Brisbane? Um, and 
that also applies in in relation to a number of other issues um, and it is a bit of an identity crisis uh, you can see it in the way the the right wing are now pushing someone like Jim Chalmers who's only been in parliament two terms um, because they don't want Albanese because he's yes. from the left but they may not want him from the left because they think he's un unsellable to the mm. electorate um, but all of those things that have been sublimated for some years are now back and it's a, it's a difficult moment for the ALP and they need to get it right. They do and um, really if we're thinking about like leadership and the person who's selling Labor policies, I mean Bill Shorten was not particularly likeable he did not have a great kind of charisma over through the television. In person, maybe he had a bit more person-to-person charisma. Um, but he also had a lot of political baggage. That he, I have my handle on Twitter is get shortened, and it was created because it was all about cutting someone down to size you know, knifing them in leadership spills. And Bill Shorten was a very important player in two leadership spills at least, um, you know, which saw Rudd and Gillard lose their jobs. Mm. So, I mean, it, it's surprising mm. that they ended up in that leadership contest between Albanese and Shorten with Shorten, who felt like he had, and he said this to some people, he felt like he was meant to be Prime Minister and he thought that he would become Prime Minister of Australia for many years. So... Can you still use that argument against Anthony Albanese when, you know, many might argue he's slightly more likeable than Bill Shorten? Well, in Shorten's case, uh, he you've got to remember everything is factional in, in the ALP and Shorten was in the right and the right controls the caucus. It always controls the caucus. Yeah. Um, and so it was the caucus votes and the way they weighted that, that got him up, even though the party membership um, uh, voted for, uh, for Albanese. Um, and I don't quite know what's going to happen this time, but you can tell it's being, you know, it's being played out now because we're up to sort of three candidates and maybe even a fourth. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, that what, what, what you say is quite correct. I used to feel round about the 2010 period that Shorten and that group of mainly first-term MPs... Um, I can name them. But, yeah, but, Mark R. Bibbs, <laughs> happy to name him. Oh, yes, and, and people like Don Farrell, yeah. and people like Feeney in, in Batman at the time, all of these new MPs who'd made their mark in state politics, um, you know, got elected in 07 and then knocked off a Prime Minister two and a half years later, and that's the original sin for the decade of chaos that's followed. Um, and... In some ways, I feel that all of those people disqualified themselves from being taken seriously back then. On the other hand, you can't doubt Shorten's skills. Um, I came to admire his persistence. I came to admire the way he was on, on, on top of things. I came to respect the way he'd managed the caucus um, and the shadow ministry. Um, and I thought, well, you know, maybe we make too much of the whole personality thing but i think in retrospect and I, I wouldn't have said this last week but i do now because we've got the data um now you you can say well there was a problem that people thought that he was untrustworthy 
you know. There's a piece I wrote five, six years ago online somewhere where I described him as a spiv. And I think that is a view that was fairly widely held. Mm. But having said that, if, if, if yeah. I may, <laughs> um, it's also more fundamental than that, I think. These scare campaigns or the real and imagined campaigns against the franking credits policy, uh, against the uh, um, sort of tax cuts and tax rates in general, uh, against the Adani mine, all of these sorts of things, I think, sowed enough doubts in people's minds. You know, so the, the swings in Queensland, if you look at, say, a seat like Capricornia, 12% 12% swing. You know, the, the, the Liberal there, Michelle Landry, she's the first Liberal in 60 years or more to not only be re-elected but to win a third term. Um, in New South Wales, Joel Fitzgibbon has had a 10% swing against him in Hunter. All of this is coal. All of this mm. is about jobs, you know, and this is the Labor Party's dilemma. Um, that it has to find some way to resolve this. Here we are sitting in a studio in Brunswick. Uh, this is not, you know, the, the rest of the world. This is not even the world um, that I've driven in from this morning, the world of the eastern suburbs, mm. uh, where, again, there are seats where there are small swings against the Liberals, but there are other seats where there are swings to them, you know, seats where... You know, the so-called hard right Michael Sukar can get easily re-elected. Um, a seat where the Liberals look as though they're probably going to win Chisholm. Um, and, you know, you have to th- think, well, you know, it's more fundamental than just these personality factors. Mm. Well, to me, it wasn't necessarily personality, but as you say, trustworthiness Mm. and whether he could really separate himself from that history that is still not front of people's minds, but people still think about it and it's referred to by his, yes. you know, The apparatchik, the union brawler, yeah. all of that. And most of the negative attack um, angles that the Scott Morrison and the Liberals played were around, you know, you can't trust Bill. That was what mm. uh, Clive Palmer really was focusing on, particularly was around trust. And also the fact that they were saying it's the bill you can't afford. Mm. You know, there's all these, like, stealthy taxes that are going to take your money yes. in the night. Oh, yes, yes. And death and we, taxes that don't even exist. Yes. And we know from past experience you know, Howard nearly lost because of the GST. Um, it's very difficult to sell that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and so maybe they just failed some basic lessons of politics, you know, politics 101. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's hard. It's, it is hard to sell tax changes when you've got more than one because mm. not everyone is really interested yes. in tax. They're just more yes. occupied with their own income tax and anything else that's yes. relevant to their themselves. Um, but there's also, I feel like perhaps earlier, and this is where I'd like your opinion given you've been observing politics over such a, a wide range of time, is that was it easier to prosecute um, more complex tax changes or things that had nuance because, as we know, Labor wasn't getting rid of negative gearing. They were 
altering it so mm. that you could only negatively gear new houses and they grandfathered it so yes. that anyone pre-existing can still negatively gear the property they're already there, doing. You cannot underestimate the fact that people don't know what the term grandfather means. Yes. I remember a time when I didn't know what it meant. Same. Because yeah. it was one of those bureaucratic <laughs> terms that I learnt, you know, not that long ago. Yeah. Um, and that's par- partly where it's all gone wrong. There has been a scare campaign. Mm. I mean, there's no question of that. And this is chickens coming home to roost because Shorten tried the Medi-Scare campaign at the last election. And I found that disturbing at the time because it was pretty thinly based, mm. very thinly based. And Morrison clearly decided... We're not going to be caught. We're going to return fire and we're going to return fire with cannons. And that's what they did. Um, So put all those things together, it's worked. Was it easier once before? I think the people in the business would say, yes, it was. Um, It's easy to overestimate that. I mean, I'm someone who was at school when Whitlam was trying to introduce universal health insurance. And, you know, I was pushing 50 before you could even begin to think that it was entrenched. Um, it was an issue that had to be relitigated election after election for the best part of 30 years. Um, I remember the Hawke and Keating years in the 80s. Yes, there was some bipartisan agreement on certain things, but anyone who thinks that that was the dominant attitude of the time is kidding themselves. I remember the campaigns about, um, you know, old ladies keeping their their jewellery under the bed because uh, who would have been... um, I forgot who the Labour leader was. <laughs> yeah, no, because because Hawke was coming after it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so it, it was still a sort of a nasty time, but it was a different time. Um, you know, some people will tell you that when it came to an opinion poll, uh, and I've heard various Hawke ministers uh, say this, that a poll was very useful to find out what people were thinking, But it didn't mean you then adjusted what you were doing. It meant that you took into account what you needed to persuade people of. Mm. Um, I think there's some truth in that. Uh, Politics now is very, uh, you know, it's sort of, you know, here's some money for a hospital here, here's a road here, you know. Um, And it sort of lacks an overarching sort of story to tie it all together and sell it. And even though we were encouraged by the sort of media we consume to believe that Morrison is this, uh, you know, bogan advertising man, you know, with his uh, baseball cap on, um, spouting empty slogans. Now, that may all be true, but at another level, he was also just pushing a couple of fairly straightforward messages and they worked, you know. It's, it's like last year in the state election here in Victoria. I was struck and, and when I started talking to people I realised they were experiencing it too but what most people were sort of saying was, oh, well, Andrews, they've got a lot done. 
look at all those level crossings, look at these roads, look at these, you know, this, that and the other. Um, and they were rewarded for sticking to, you know, the meat and potatoes, mm. the bread and butter, if you like, of, of, of politics, um, you know, and you have to find a way to do that federally as well, I think. Um, but, you know, historically, I mean, you can go back before Whitlam, it's not always easy. It's never easy, never mm. easy. Um, you know, the fights are bitter. If, if, if you look at the disputes over what to do about the Depression, you know, I mean, they split the Labor Party three ways, you know. Their leader became leader of the other side. You know, I mean, things that we would find almost impossible to imagine now. Um, you know, the conscription debates in World War One, the most sort of bitter time in our history in many respects. Um, you know, bank nationalisation in the 1940s. Um, it's never easy. And so maybe it's something to do with the type of person who is in politics now. Mm. I'm, I'm not in that camp that says that, you know, it's all worse than it used to be. Because I can remember when people used to say that about the lot that went before. You know, they always say it. That It's the sort of country we are. You know, we have a grizzle, you know, oh, you know, not as good as Howard. And then when it was Howard, oh, not as good as Hawke. Oh, not as good as Menzies and, you know, and all this <laughs> sort of stuff. Um, it, it was ever thus. Um, but in a way, maybe the narrowing of the base of the uh, background of MPs does have something to do with it now. I also am interested in your thoughts on the media and the public discourse that we're having, given that you've been, you know, tracking it, mm. you've got some great resources on your website, australianpolitics.com. And um, what I'm interested in, given that I only have a smaller range of time to refer to, I, I want to grab your knowledge too, is that even on during my lifetime, when I was, you know, very absorbed in newspapers and politics in high school, when nearly all of my friends were not... I noticed that there was at least some level of agreement on the set of facts that we were arguing mm. from and there seemed to be less a contestation of the facts and more a contestation of how to solve the problem or, mm. you know, deal with the f set of facts. Mm. Is is that a real change in your oh, mind? I, I think that that's undoubtedly true. Um, I mean, the internet has done that uh, without, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, the extent to which that's the real problem, look, I just don't know, but but there's no question that is the case. Um, I This started out as a joke, but it's sort of become my semi-official policy. Don't read a newspaper unless it's at least 30 years old, <laughs> because if you just do that, you go back and you read the old newspapers and you realise how much of it well, no, that's not quite what happened. That's not mm. how it worked out. That prediction didn't come true. Um, and if we get too lost amongst that sort of stuff, and in a week like this, after an election, there's an awful lot of it, and it helps to just sort of walk away from it a little bit. I mean, if you think back to the election campaign, this is the classic instance of where the media just focus on the things that that matter but which aren't the real story. So we had Kuyong and Higgins... Yes. And, and I met people who believed that Kuyong and Higgins were going to fall, that Flinders was going to fall. Whereas, you know, it's obvious that the only one that was ever realistically going to fall was Warringah. 
because that was mm. just that was one out of the box, you know. And even Karen Phelps has lost, you know. She's a seven-month MP. That's her footnote in the history books. Um, and there's all this focus on things that I used to think, well, why aren't you out not doing a story on Kuyong, but why aren't you doing a story on Chisholm and Deacon and Aston and Latrobe? Yeah. That's, if it's going to swing anyway, that's where it'll swing. Um, you know, but maybe all these media people, you know, are in fact in a city latte sitting, <laughs> latte, latte sipping types. <laughs> it is possible. I mean, you were saying that you're. <clears throat> what, what is the seat that you were in? I'm in Chisholm. Chisholm. Well, there you go. I'm in Chisholm. And as they were After saying, years of living in safe seats, I'm, I'm, I'm now in a marginal. <laughs> Your vote does count, literally. Yeah. Well, I've just checked, and there are 600 votes in it at the moment, and obviously in favour of Gladys Liu, the right. Liberal candidate. Uh, it will be hard to topple that. Yeah. At this stage. that she, she, She's got it, I reckon. Well, because now we're moving into postal votes. And they're breaking 60% for, the, for her, I believe. Mm, mm. And there was also some interesting discussion or and a lot of outrage on Twitter, as usual, about some of the campaign tactics on the day, particularly the mm. sign in Mandarin that said the correct way to vote mm. is to preference one Liberal mm. and then number all the rest of the yeah. boxes that was in AEC colours and sitting right next to an official AEC sign. Yes. Look, those dirty tricks are tried by all and sundry from time to time. It's pretty bold. It, it, is, it is bold. <laughs> in an electorate that has 20% Mandarin speakers. That's true. But it also means you have to believe that the average Chinese voter is stupid and will fall for this. And I don't think that's any more likely than you or I falling mm. for it. Well, I think from my understanding, they're particularly politically astute mm. and very engaged. Mm. Yeah. And most likely conservative voters. Yes, and would already <laughs> possibly vote Liberal. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Well, I, I come from Kurangamite, so on the I've been following that campaign closely and a lot of uh, media were saying, oh, look at all the money being thrown at Kurangamite. Mm. Oh, how lucky those Kurangamite people are. Well, I was kind of annoyed at that because it was a very easy and simplistic way of talking mm. about something that was actually a lot more complex and yeah. important. It was billions and it didn't work. Yes, and also, like, the Liberal Party proposed around $3 billion roughly. It could have been more than that in the end. Like, there were so many sporting clubs getting half a million dollars each. Mm. I couldn't count them all. But there was also $2 billion of it was a proposed fast rail between Geelong and Melbourne mm. that did not have state government support at all, that yes. hadn't even had a feasibility study delivered. And we had, at the beginning of the campaign, Sarah Henderson had signs out saying, fast rail to Melbourne delivered <laughs> already. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so a lot of the electorate were saying, well, that's two-thirds of the promises you've given us is a pipe dream potentially that will be stalled by mm. the Victorian government anyway. So I guess in terms of pork barrelling and yes. buying electorates, it didn't really seem it, to be very well no, thought through. It, it'll work to some extent because people expect that, you know, things are going to be delivered. But um, I think really we shouldn't underestimate the electorate. Mm. But they, they, they are able to see through these things. Um, and we shouldn't overestimate it ourselves because, you know, the real reason uh, Sarah Henderson has lost is that the redistribution put some of the suburbs of Geelong into Karangamite 
and that's killed her. You know, it's it's a structural thing as much as anything mm. else. Yeah. Because everyone would agree that she's been quite a good member. You know, I'm sure she's well respected and well regarded down there. Um, but that counts for nothing if you know if the boundaries are against you and you know and the government is on the nose. Mm. I think that one of the really important things is that electorates can smell when something isn't right or that it's not delivering on something that they want and they can tell when a politician is being genuine and when they're not and a lot of people have said this election result is the wrong result that Mm. Labor has lost the unlosable election and that you know we should get rid of Queensland and you know they've all chosen the wrong person oh yes it seems like a problematic thing to say to suggest that the Australians got it wrong Mm. when we're in a democracy look I I agree entirely. Within 12 hours of this result, I'd already had one argument with someone I've known for many, many years who wouldn't accept any criticism of the Labor Party. It was all, you know, a conspiracy by Murdoch or, you know, Palmer or whoever. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, it was all sort of scare campaigns and and all the rest. And it's very difficult to have a sensible political discussion with people thinking like this. I I, I have no truck with all this stuff about, you know, I mean, by all means, let's joke about, uh, you know, getting rid of Queensland and so on. But but it's nonsense. It is. The, 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 The challenge for the party is... How do you deal with this, Mm. you know? You have to win seats in New South Wales and Victoria because that's where most of them are, but you can't win if you're not doing well in Queensland. And you have to say, well, all right, Anastasia Palaszczuk has done it. We've got to work out how to do it, you know? Mm. Um, And I, 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 I I can't abide the people who say that type of thing because, you know, occasionally the people will elect the other side and you can't argue that they were very sensible and intelligent and <laughs> forward-thinking then and now they're all stupid. Yes. Um, this is a sort of an eight-year-old's reaction to a setback. Yeah, it's and a I, tantrum. We can, it, is, it is a tantrum. Yeah. yeah. We are running out of time, so I just want to finally end on Bob Hawke because he passed away right at the end of the campaign. And, of course, um, we did stop and have a bit of reflection, but I wanted to... Well, we know why. He wasn't going to stick around no. to see this. Uh, well, it might have killed him if he did stick around because it's pretty, yeah, shocking and gutting for some people who were particularly passionate about the environment and climate change. Bob Hawke is known for many things, particularly his economic reforms with Paul Keating, but he also has an environmental legacy. Absolutely. From the Franklin Dam through to the Daintree, through to Mm. sand mining. Um, Yeah, quite a good record. Do you think that he, at the when he passed on and we had this kind of moment of reflection, to me it seemed like it presented a very stark contrast to you know, his type of leadership to the type of leadership we have right now. What is your summation, given that you've seen both governments? Oh, well, look, I think that's right. Um, I regard Bob Hawke as one of those people who looks better and better with every passing day. Um, because if you lived through the 80s, you can't deny that many Labor supporters and many Labor Party members were very hostile to Hawke. You know, he was accused of being, you know, too close to what we once would have called the big end of town, but perhaps that phrase died the other day. Um, 
and uh, and Hawke's policies were were resisted. Um, I, I know people who still won't sort of uh, be too upset about Hawke departing because they didn't like what he did. That, that you, you, you can't underestimate that. Um, as Bill Clinton used to say about Harry Truman and his health reforms, he said, my family... No, I won't try and do the accent, <laughs> but he said, you know, my family supported him when he was actually president. Um, and, you know, there are some people who supported Hawke when he was actually prime minister. There are people who support him now, but they weren't necessarily there at the time. Mm. Um, but... In other respects, he's the exemplar of how to be a Prime Minister. He managed a Cabinet. Um, if, if you read Gareth Evans' books, for example, he talks at some length about this, at, at the way the Cabinet operated and the way decisions were made. Uh, and it's very impressive because that's how our system should it's work. It's meant to work, yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, and in that respect, he was more than just a chairman of the board. He was a, a prime minister who really knew how to do it. Plus, he was surrounded by a very talented team, you know, yeah. one, of, one of the most talented mm. ever. Um, We're going to have to finish one of the it there. for sure. Yeah. Malcolm, it's been such a pleasure for me to really get into some detail with you about federal politics and pick your brain, which is uh, very knowledgeable and passionate as well. And um, I hope that people can follow you on Twitter at mfarnsworth and visit your websites, one of which is australianpolitics.com, and also support those websites because they do need... um, crowdfunding to keep them going and be a resource that everyone can use so that people can go to your Patreon uh, webpage, which I will link to as well. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Malcolm Farnsworth, who is a political writer and history buff, and he's come in to talk about federal politics. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.